Chapter Ten: The Marauders Map. This chapter starts with an M. Madame Poppy insists on keeping Harry in the hospital wing for the rest of the weekend, and Harry didn't argue or complain. He's out of it. He's he's lost it. So, but he had a stream of visitors and all sorts of get better cards and get better gifts. When the Gryffindor team visited again on Sunday morning, this time Wood was here. He told Harry that in a hollow, dead sort of voice, he didn't blame him in the least. Ron and Hermione left Harry's bedside only at night, and nothing anyone said or did could make Harry feel any better, because they knew only half of what was troubling him. Now he knows the voice, the screaming voice, was his mother. This is like a depression haunts you. Nothing, your friends or gifts, visits, nothing will make you feel better. It really is like that, and he hadn't told anyone about the grain because it happened twice now, and he was wondering, it's like, is the grain going to haunt him until he actually died? But the rest of the hospital stay is just full of clammy, rotten hands and petrified pleading, jerking awake to the drill again or the screaming nightmares on his mother's voice. Finally, it was a relief for him to return to school, even if he has to. Face Malfoy. He has finally taken off his bandages and celebrated having the full use of both arms again by doing spirited imitation of Harry falling off his broom. This is like okay. He go from the demental ooh to now falling off the broom imitation. Malfoy is just also dumb in this book. And at the potions class, I guess Ron finally gave punched him in the face, but that caused Snape to take fifty points from Gryffindor. Worth it. And before they go to the defense against the dark arts, Ron was like, "If Snape's teaching that again, I'm going to just storm off." Luckily, Professor Lupin was back at work. Understandably, the whole class burst at once into an explosion of complaints about Snape's behaviors. But Lupin was not looking okay. He obviously had been ill. His old robes now is even worse, just hanging more loosely on him. And he's even got raccoon eyes. There are dark shadows beneath his eyes. Firstly, he told the class, "It's like, don't worry. I will speak to Professor Snape. You don't have to do the two row of parchment of the essay on werewolves. You don't have to do that essay." And <laughs> hilariously, Hermione just goes, "Oh no, I've already finished it." They had a very enjoyable lesson, so they keep on teaching. A, a glass box containing a hinky punk. It's a one-legged creature, and they just basically lures travelers into box. I would say this is quite spooky. It's like, do you notice the lamp, the lantern dangling from his hand? Hops ahead, people follow the lights, and then, whoa, whoa. <laughs> and the bell rang. Everyone's out, but Lupin wants a word with Harry. It's like I heard about the match. I'm so sorry about your broomstick. Is there any chance of fixing it? No. The tree smashed it to bits. To this, Lupin signed and said they planted a whomping willow the same year that I arrived at Hogwarts. People used to play a game, trying to get near enough to touch the trunk. In the end, a boy called Davy Gudgeon nearly lost an eye, and we were forbidden to go near it. No broomstick would have a chance. And Harry told him, "Dementors are the reason he fell." Now this is the doubt's clear moments. It's like, why? Why do they affect me like that? Am I just? Lupin just goes. It has nothing to do with weakness. Dementors affect you worse than the others because there are horrors in your past that the others don't have. Dementors are among the foulest creatures that walk this earth. They infest the darkest, filthiest places. They glory in decay and disappear. They drain peace, hope. 
and happiness out of the air around them. Even muggles feel their presence, though they can't see them. Get too near the mental, and every good feeling, every happy memory, will be sucked out of you. If it can, the mental will feed on you long enough to reduce you to something like itself, soulless and evil. You'll be left with nothing but the worst experiences of your life. And the worst that happened to you, Harry, is enough to make anyone fall off their broom. You have nothing to feel ashamed of. To this, Harry's like, "Yeah, when they get near me, I can hear Voldemort murdering my mom." And they had a brief discussion of Azkaban. Lupin was like, "The fortress is set on a tiny island, way out to sea, but they don't need walls and water to keep the prisoners in. Not when they're all trapped inside their own heads, incapable of a single cheerful thought. Most of them go mad within weeks." To this, Harry said slowly, "But Sirius Black escaped from them. He got away." And Lupin said, "Yeah, Black must have found a way to fight them. I wouldn't have believed it possible. Dementors are supposed to drain a wizard of his powers if he is left with them too long." Harry said suddenly, "You made that Dementor on the train back off." And Lupin said, "There are." Certain defenses one can use, but there was only one Dementor on the train. The more there are, the more difficult it becomes to resist. To this, Harry's like, "Oh, what defenses? Can you teach me?" Like, if Dementors come to another Quidditch match, I need to be able to fight them. Lupin a little bit hesitated, but it's like, "Well, all right, I will try and help, but it will have to wait until next term, I'm afraid. I have a lot to do before the holidays. I chose a very inconvenient time to fall ill." What brings Harry's mood back a little bit? A definite upturn is the promise of this anti-demental lessons from Lupin, and Lupin seems to be pretty capable. And、uh, the fact that Ravenclaw flattened Hufflepuff in the Quidditch match at the end of November, so Harry Gryffindors were not out of the running after all, although they could not afford to lose another match. <laughs> and Wood became repossessed of his maniac energy and worked his team as hard as ever in the chilly haze of rain that possessed it into December. Look at this sentence; it's so good. With Christmas coming two weeks before the end of the term, I just love this feeling of cozy inside the castle. There was a buzz of Christmas, and Professor Flitwick, the charms teacher, had already decorated his classrooms with shimmering lights that turned out to be real fluttering. Fairies, and as usual, the three of them will stay at Hogwarts for the holidays. Everybody else was discussing their plans, and Ron and Hermione both had reasons to stay, but Harry knew they just want to stay, keep him company, and he was very grateful for that. To everybody's delight, except Harry's, there was another Hogsmeade trip on the very last weekend of the term. They just do all the Christmas shopping there. And because Hermione's parents are dentists, so she goes, "Mom and Dad would really love those tooth flossing string mints from Honeydukes." And because Harry would be the only third year staying behind again, gosh, that feeling! Can't go to Hogsmeade. He decided to borrow something from Wood, which broomstick? That's a book. And decided to spend the day reading up on different makes. Now he is—he didn't have a broomstick, so he's using the school brooms. And this one is super slow and jerky. And on Saturday morning of the Hogsmeade trip, Harry said goodbye to Ron, Hermione, and were just going back to the staircases alone. And heard Fred and George calling him like. Harry was surprised. Like, what are you doing? How come you're not going to Hogsmeade? And they're just, we are just here to give you a bit festival cheer before we go. Early Christmas present for you, Harry. 
And what's that supposed to be? An old parchment. And they were telling how they come about getting this old parchment is during one of those detention or disembowelments, and they just couldn't help noticing a drawer in one of his filing cabinets marked "confiscated" and "highly dangerous." Read it like George as cover. I whipped the drawer open and grabbed this. And he's smirking at this. Says this little beauty taught us more than all the teachers in this school. Here comes the classic quote. It's like I solely swear that I'm up to no good. He took out his wand, touched the parchment lightly, and at once thin ink lines began to spread like a spider's web from the point that George's wand had touched. They joined each other. They crisscrossed. They fanned into every corner of the parchment. Then words began to blossom across the top. Great curly green words that preclaimed Messrs. Mooney, Wormtail, Patfoot, and Prompts, purveyors of aids, the magical mischief makers, are proud to present the Marauders' Map. So it was a map showing every detail of the Hogwarts castle and grounds. But that's not all. The truly remarkable thing were the tiny ink dots moving around it, each labeled with a name in minuscule writing. Astounded, Harry just checked. Professor Dumbledore was pacing his study. The caretaker's cat, Mrs. Norris, was prowling the second floor, and Peeves, the Poltergeist, was currently bouncing around the trophy room. And as Harry's eyes traveled up and down the familiar corridors, he noticed something else. This map showed a set of passages he had never entered, and many of them seemed to lead right into Hogsmeade. Fred just reads his mind. There are seven in all now. Felch knows all these four, but we're sure we're the only ones who know about these. Don't bother with the one behind the mirror on the fourth floor. We used it until last winter, but it's caved in, completely blocked, and we don't reckon anyone's ever used this one because the whomping willows planted right over the entrance. But this is very important, actually. But this one here. This one leads right into the cellar of Honey Jukes. We've used it loads of times, and as you might have noticed, the entrance is right outside this room. And checking back to the map, George said, "Moni, Wormtail, Padfoot, and Prongs. We own them so much." Ed Solandy also said, "Nobleman working tirelessly to help a new generation of lawbreakers." Briskly, George said, "Right, don't forget to wipe it after you've used it, or anyone can read it." Warned Fred. Okay, another classic quote. Just tap it again and say, "Mischief managed," and it will go blank. And then Fred and George just left. It's like, "See you in Honey Jukes," smirking, winking. But the next is kind of this angel and demon on your shoulder moment for Harry. It's like, "Do I do this?" This is something as Mr. Weasley had warned them. Never trust anything that can think for itself if you can't see where it keeps its brain. This is just exactly one of those dangerous magical objects. It's like aids for magical mischief makers. But then Harry's like reason to himself. I only wanted to use it to get into Hogsmeade. It wasn't as if I wanted to steal anything or attack anyone. And Fred and George had been using it for years without anything horrible happening. So. Harry traced the secret passage to Honey Jukes with his fingers. Then, quite suddenly, 
as though following orders, he rolled up the map, stuffed it inside his robes, and hurried to the door of the classroom. Just when you're picturing Harry doing all this dodging thingy, he opened it a couple of inches, and there was no one outside. You know, you can see everybody on the map. And so very carefully, he edged out of the room and behind the statue of the one-eyed witch. And he checked the map again because he didn't really know what to do. And to his astonishment, he saw himself. There is an ink figure labeled Harry Potter. And this figure was standing exactly where the real Harry was standing. He watched carefully. His little ink self appeared to be tapping the witch with his minute wand. Harry quickly took out his real wand and tapped the statue. Nothing happened. He looked back at the map. The tiniest speech bubble had appeared next to his figure. The word inside said "Sundium." Just imagine a tiny speech bubble on the parchment. Oh. J.K. Rowling, how did you think of that? So Harry whispered, tapping the stone, which again descended. At once, the statue's hump opened wide enough to admit a fairly thin person. Harry glanced quickly up and down the corridor, then tucked the map away again, hoisted himself into the hole headfirst, and pushed himself forward. Inside, it was pitch black. He had to use the luminous spell with his wand again. And at some point, he raised the map, tapped it with the tip of his wand, and muttered, "Mischief managed." The map went blank at once. After what felt like an hour, the passage began to rise. Panting, Harry sped up. His face hot, his feet very cold. Ten minutes later, climbing and climbing, then without warning, his head had something hard. It seemed to be a trapdoor. It was. He was in a cellar, which was full of wooden crates and boxes. He obviously climbed out of the trapdoor and replaced it. It blended so perfectly with the dusty floor that it was impossible to tell it was there. Harry crept slowly towards the wooden staircase that led upstairs. Now he could definitely hear voices, not to mention the tinkle of a bell and the opening and shutting of a door. Quickly and silently, Harry dodged out from his hiding place and climbed the stairs. Looking back, he saw an enormous backside and shiny bald head buried in a box. Just to read you that, just every step he took, J.K. Rowling writes something there, just to give you a whole picture. As the character Harry Potter was moving about, you get to see the whole place, and there's somebody ordering something—a bald head or some shabby-looking man or woman. Footsteps. It's just very descriptive, very vivid imagery. Eventually, he found himself behind the counter of Honey Jukes. He ducked, crept sideways, and then straightened up. Honey Jukes was so crowded with Hogwarts students that no one looked twice at Harry. He just edged among them, looking around and suppressed a laugh. Funny enough, at this moment he laughed because he was imagining Dudley's piggy face if he could see where Harry was now. Just imagine how you think of Dudley at this moment. And Honey Jukes, what's that place? There were shelves upon shelves of the most succulent-looking sweets imaginable. Oh, I will. So copy and pasting the rest of the sweets onto my description page. So Harry squeezed himself through a crowd of six years and saw a sign hanging in the farthest corner of the shop: "Unusual tastes, 
Ron and Hermione were standing underneath it, examining a tray of blood-flavored lollipops. Harry sneaked up behind them. Ah,、oh, no! Harry won't want one of those. They're for vampires, I expected. Hermione was saying. Well, how about these? Said Ron, shoving a jar of cockroach clusters under Hermione's nose. Definitely not, said Harry. Ron nearly dropped the jar. Harry squealed. Hermione, what are you doing here? How how did you get here? It's like wow. Ron just looking so very impressed. You've learned to operate. Of course I haven't," said Harry, and he dropped his voice so that none of the six years could hear him, and told them all about Marauder's Map. The rest of Harry's stay in Hogsmeade kind of like a mixture of finally he gets to experience all the things his friend has been telling him. How wonderful those shops are, sweet shops, post office, and everything. He finally gets to experience it. That's always a good feeling. It's like you finally get to go to a theme park that your friend has been bragged about. But there is another storyline when Harry meets all the teachers and by eavesdropping accidentally. As a reader, we、uh, through Harry, we know that we get an inside view of what's the relation between Sirius Black,、uh, Voldemort, and、uh, the Potter family, basically. So it's also a really important storyline in the Harry Potter canon. So let's let's go. As Harry was filling them in with the map. And all the secret passages. Of course, Hermione is like you are. You have to hand it in because what if Sirius Black was, you know, going through the castles through one of the passages? And Harry just, it's impossible. And also, as they were arguing, they have seen some order from the Ministry of Magic on the sweet shops doors. It says something like, "Customers are reminded that until further notice, the Mentors will be patrolling the streets of Hogsmeade every night after sundown. Therefore, it is advisable." That you complete your shopping well before nightfall and Merry Christmas. And for this, Ron just had this theory: like, if you have the Mentors patrolling the streets, then how could Sirius Black even stand a chance of trying to break into Honeydukes and go through the secret tunnel, get into the castle? And finally, Ron always said the reasonable thing: it's like, come on, Hermione, it's Christmas. Harry deserves a break. What's wrong with having a little fun, break a little rules? And Hermione just bit her lips, looking extremely worried. I think it's also fit their characters, their personalities. Hermione is obviously not going to report Harry. It's just he's she is worried about Harry. I think she always believed the adults. She believes that you should report everything to the teachers, and the teachers always knows. The best thing to do to protect students or deal with all sorts of dangerous things, versus the boys. Ron and Harry likes to take charge of themselves. Then, when Ron and Hermione paid for all their sweets, they head out for the blizzard outside. And Hogsmeade looked like a Christmas card. It's described as the cottages and shops are all covered in a layer of crisp snow. There were holy wreaths on the doors and strings of enchanted candles hanging in the trees. Harry shivered. It was really cold, and unlike the other two, he didn't even have his cloak. So they were trying to decide where to go. It's like that's the post office, and Zoko's up there, and they could go up to the shrinking shank. But they were like, "How about let's just go for some butter beer in the Three Broomsticks?" This seems to be what they really need right now. Harry was more than willing because the wind was fierce and his hands were freezing. So they crossed the road and, in a few minutes, were entering the tiny inn. It was extremely crowded, noisy, 
warm and smoky. Here, firstly, we meet the owner. I think it's Madame Rosemeter. Harry and Hermione made their way to the back of the room. There was a small vacant table between the window and the handsome Christmas tree. This will come in handy later. And then Ron go get their butterbeards. And five minutes later, he carried three foaming butterbeer. Come raising his tankards and said, "Merry Christmas!" Happily, they drank deeply. Harry felt like it was the most delicious thing he'd ever tasted, and seemed to heat every bit of him from the inside. I want that. I mean, I have tasted butterbeer. In a lot of shops in real life, but I guess it's different if it's enchanted, if it's in Hogsmeade, if it's real, the real thing in the books. It has some magic to heat every fiber of yourself from the inside. I would like to experience that. And then Professor McGonagall, Flitwick, Hagrid, Cornelius, Fudge, Minister of Magic. They all walked in. Seeing them, Ron Hermione just instantly placed hands on the top of Harry's head and forced him off his stool and under the table, dripping with spots of beer and crouching out of sight. Harry clenched his empty tankard and watched the teachers and Fudge's feet move towards the bar. Pause, then turn and walk right towards him. This is so good. Like just describe the whole. Sing and describe the people by the feet. But firstly, remember the Christmas tree beside them. Hermione just whispers some spell like mobilia. But then the Christmas tree beside them rose a few inches off the ground, drifted sideways, and landed with a soft thud right in front of their table, hiding them from view. And then they could eavesdrop. <laughs> Back to the feet scene, and Harry saw another pair of feet wearing sparkly turquoise high heels, and heard a woman's voice. That's the inn owner, Madame Rose Mitter. Professor McGonagall ordered a small gilly water. For Hagrid, it's four pints of mood meat, and for Professor Flitwick, it was a cherry syrup and soda with ice and umbrella. And finally, for the Minister of Magic Fudge, the red currant rum. And they all said thank you, but Harry just watched the glittering heels march away and back again. His heart was pounding uncomfortably in his throat. Why hadn't it occurred to him that this was the last weekend of term for the teachers too? And how long were they going to sit there? He needed time to sneak back into Honeydukes if he wanted to return to school tonight. Hermione's leg at this moment gave a nervous twitch next to him. I told you this is all the legs and feet descriptions here, quite nice. So they start to discuss what brings the Minister of Magic here, and it's like, of course, Sirius Black. This part in the movie, I remember, it was not like this. It was the three of them, Hermione, Ron, and Harry. They were walking, and they just see the four professors, the four adult, gets in the pub, and they try to follow in. Only Harry. Managed to go through because the invisibility cloak that makes him be able to go through the kind of underaged check from the front of the bar, and so Hermione and Ron obviously was left out. And the rest of the conversation from the four adults was not so lengthy. In the movie, it was just one important message. That was Sirius Black was Harry's. Godfather and Sirius Black and James Potter—they are inseparable. They're best friends, and he basically betrayed him. He's a traitor. That's the only thing. But here, from the book, you can get more information from the conversation, I guess, and also through the chats, you have more idea of each professor or character's personalities, just how they react to certain events and how they try to deal with it or cope with it. Firstly, let's. 
hear from Madame Rose Meta Murder, and she was basically saying of all the people to go over to the dark side, Sirius Black was the last she'd have thought, and that just make you feel what really? And this adds more character to Sirius Black because there are people who wouldn't believe he would be one of those ones to go bad, go dark. This remark is just quite different from in the beginning. Everybody just he's such a bad guy, the worst of all. Prisoners of Azkaban, it's like that. So now we get another side of Sirius Black. He also went to Hogwarts as a boy. I guess the same goes to when James Potter and Sirius Black, they would, as Ron and Harry, they would come to Hogsmeade and to drink and do stuff. But they say if at the t that time, from that impression over the boys, Madame Rose Myrtle would have a hard time believe what he was going to become. She even goes to say, I'd have said this person, whoever was spreading that kind of comments, had to much meat. Until this, Fudge just goes, you don't know the half of it. Rose Murta, the worst he did isn't widely known. The worst? Said Madame Rose Murta, her voice alive with curiosity. Worse than murdering all those poor people, you mean? I certainly do, said Fudge. I can't believe that. What could possibly be worse? You say you remember him at Hogwarts, Rose Murta. Do you remember who his best friend was? Naturally, said Madame Rose Murta, with a small laugh. <laughs> Never saw one without the other, did you? The number of times I had them in here, ooh, used to make me laugh. Quite a double act, Sirius Black and James Butter. And mentioning of his father's name, Harry just dropped his tankard with loud clock. Ron kicked him. And to this, Professor McGonagall said, precisely, Black and Potter bring leaders of their little gang. Both very bright, of course, exceptionally bright, in fact. But I don't think we've ever had such a pair of troublemakers. To this, Hagrid chuckled. It's like Fred and George Weasley could give them a run for their money. And the Flitwick said, you'd have thought Black and Potter were brothers, inseparable. Fudge agreed. It's like, of course they were. Potter trusted Black beyond all his other friends. Nothing changed when they left school. Black was best man when James married Lily. Then... They named him Godfather to Harry. Harry has no idea, of course. You can imagine how the idea would torment him. Okay, then story time. So back in the day, not many people aware that the Potters actually knew you-know-who was after them. Dumbledore, who was of course working tirelessly against the you-know-who, had a number of useful spies. One of them tipped him off, and he alerted James and Lily at once. He advised them to go into hiding. Well, of course, you know who wasn't an easy person to hide from. Dumbledore told them that their best chance was the Fidelius charm. And what's that? The Fidelius charm was an immensely complex spell, basically involving in the magical concealment of a secret inside a single living soul. You got need a soul. The information is hidden inside the chosen person or the secret keeper and is henceforth impossible to find unless, of course, the secret keeper chose to divulge it. As long as the secret keeper refused to speak, you know who could search the village where Lily and James were staying for years and never find them. So, as you've guessed, Black was Potter's secret keeper. Because James trusted Black for all his life, he told Dumbledore that Black would die rather than tell where they were. And also Black was planning to go into hiding himself. Yet Dumbledore remained worried, and he even goes to offering be the secret keeper himself. Not that specifically he was suspected of Black, but he was just sure. 
Somebody close to the Potters had been keeping you know who informed of their movements. Indeed, he had suspected for some time that someone on our side had turned traitor and was passing a lot of information to you know who. But James Potter insisted on using Black, and Black betrayed him, as the story goes. And in the end, that he it's like Black planned this for the moment of the Potter's death, but you know who met his downfall after Harry Potter powers gone, horribly weakened, he fled, and this left Black in a very nasty position indeed. His master had fallen at the very moment when he Black had shown his true colors as a traitor. He had no choice but to run for it. At this moment, Hagrid just goes filthy, stinky turncoat. Shh. Said Professor McGonagall. I told you this. Just the whole conversation in this way. If you're writing or telling the story in this way, it just kind of like while listening to how this goes, you also knew whoever was telling or commenting on the story's personalities. The rest of the story, the crazy easier version, was like from Hagrid. Hagrid was like, I must have been the last to see him before he killed all those people. It was me who rescued Harry from Lily and James' house after they were killed. Just got him out of the ruins, poor little thing, with a grace. Slash across his forehead, and his parents dead. And Sirius Black turned up on the flying motorbike he used to ride. Never occurred to me what he was doing there. I didn't know he'd been Billy and James' secret keeper. Thought he'd just heard the news to you know who's attack and come to see what he could do. Why then shaking he was? And you know what I did? I comforted the murdering traitor. Hagrid roared. Hagrid, please keep your voice down," said Professor McGonagall. "How was I to know he wasn't upset about Lily and James? It was you know who he cared about. And then he says, 'Give Harry to me, Hagrid. I'm his godfather. I will look after him.'" Hagrid continued. "Ha!" But I had me orders from Dumbledore, and I told Black no. Dumbledore said Harry was to go to his aunts and uncles. Black argued, but in the end he gave in. Told me to take his motorbike to get Harry there. I won't need it anymore, he says. I should have known there's something fishy going on then. He loved that motorbike. What was he giving it to me for? Why wouldn't he need it anymore? Fact was, it was too easy to trace. Dumbledore knew he'd been the Potter's secret keeper. Black knew he was going to have to run for it that night. Knew it was a matter of hours before the Ministry was after him. But what if I'd given Harry to him? Eh? I bet he'd have pitched him off the bike halfway out to sea. His best friend's son. But when a wizard goes over to the dark side, there's nothing and no one that matters to him anymore. A long silence followed Hagrid's story, and Madame Rosemarta goes. But he didn't manage to disappear, did he? The Ministry of Magic caught up with him next day. Fudge to this said bitterly. Alas, if only we had! It was not we who found him. It was little Peter Pettigrew, another of the Potter's friends, maddened by grief, no doubt, and knowing that Black had been the Potter's secret keeper, he went after Black himself. And who is this pity guru? To our readers, they tend to explain the fat little boy who is always tagged tagging around after them at Hogwarts. So. Peter Pettigrew was described as this little boy who was a fan boiling all over the Black and the Potter, never quite in their league. Even Madame Rosemarta was like, "I was quite sorry about that. Now I was regrets because she was often rather sharp with him. He's a nobody." And then. We heard he's dead. He's died a hero's death. Eyewitnesses, muggles, of course, we wiped their memories later. Told us how Pettigrew cornered Black.
Margot said he was sobbing. Lily and James, serious? How could you? And then he went for his wand. Well, of course, black was quicker. Blue pity grew to smithereens. Hearing this, Professor McGonagall even shed a tear. It's like stupid boy, foolish boy. He was always hopeless at dueling. I guess the dueling club should have left it to the ministry. Shouldn't have done it himself. <laughs> and he also knew black was strong. Black was one of the really good wizards, and he is a fighter. Nobody but trained head wizards from the magical law enforcement squad would have stood a chance against Black once he was cornered. Now we have been throwing ads by a bunch of departments' names, and we know there there are head wizards, such as kind of like FBI agents, and there are magical law enforcement squads. I guess do we have equipment to do that? Yes, we must have. And then we have magical catastrophes, department of magical catastrophes, and Fudge at the time was a junior minister in that department, and I was one of the first on the scene after Black murdered all those people, and Fudge was telling them, "I will never forget it." I still dream about this sometimes. A crater in the middle of the street, so deep it had cracked sewer below. Bodies everywhere. Mago screaming and Black standing there, laughing, with what was left of Pettigrew in front of him. A heap of blood-stained robes and a few, a few fragments. Well, there you have it, Rosamelta. Black was taken away by twenty members of the magical law enforcement squad, and the Pettigrew received the order of Merlin, first class, which I think was some comfort to his poor mother. Black's been in Azkaban ever since. Madame Rosamelta let out a long sigh. <laughs> it hasn't over yet. She asked, "Is it true he's mad, Minister?" I wish I could say that he was. I certainly believe his master's defeat unhinged him for a while. The murder of Pettigrew and all those muggles were the action of a cornered and desperate man. Crew pointless. Yet I met Black on my last inspection of Azkaban. You know, most of the prisoners in there sitting muttering to themselves in the dark. Quite crazy. There's no sense in them. But I was shocked at how normal Black seemed. He spoke quite rationally to me. It was unnerving. You'd have thought he was merely bored. Asked if I'd finish with my newspaper. Cool as you please. Said he missed doing the crossword. Yes, I was astounded at how little effect the Dementor seemed to be having on him. And he was one of the most heavily guarded in the place. You know, Dementors outside his door day and night. So so far, this is the story we get, and a fuller picture of Sirius Black. Quite charming bad guy, as today's definition, I guess. You know, the charming bad guys. It's like stop making bad guys hot. <laughs> and then they try to guess what he's broken out to do, and they are like, eventually, I think, just to rejoin you know who, and pans back to Voldemort. It's like Voldemort alone and. Friendless is one thing, and gave him back his most devoted servant. And I shudder to think how quickly he will rise again. It's like to catch Black. Sure, they have to catch the prisoner, escaped convict. But just the the idea of giving Voldemort back his most devoted servant as such a strong one, they wouldn't, they couldn't imagine the, how the damage. Anyway, there's a small chunk of glass on wood because still Harry is still under the table, so we still only get that view. So someone has set down their glass. You know, Colinius, if you are dining with the headmaster with a better head back, so we know it's always Professor McGonagall. It's like let's finish drinking, guys. Let's go back to the castle. One by one, the pairs of feet in front of Harry took the weight of their owners once more. Such a good sentence. Hems of cloaks swung into sight as Madame Rosemary's glittering. Heels disappeared behind the bar again. 
just look at the description. Just look like how J.K. Rowling together these descriptive sentences. And after they gone, Ron and Hermione just lost for words. And in the movie, I think it was Harry who, because only Harry heard. None of them, none of the other pairs heard it yet. And Harry just in his invisibility cloak run out into the forest in the snow, crying. And Hermione removes Harry's invisibility cloak, which is sitting beside him. And Harry shouts, "It's him! He's my father's best friend, and he betrayed them. I wish Sirius Black find me, because when he does, I'm gonna kill him. I'm going to be the one who kill him." And until next chapter eleven, the firebolt.